In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome to Moving Forward. I am your host this week, Kristen Nepper, and today my guest is Anthony Vitale. Anthony is an actor and a producer, and I'm really excited to have him with us this evening to speak about his journey. So, Tony, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Yeah, so, thank you for having me, actually. Of course. So, let's just dive right in. Let me know. So, when did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? I can specifically remember, uh, I was probably about seven years old, maybe eight, but I was at Disneyland with my parents, and they were filming something, and I remember seeing the kids there, I saw the cameras, and they were filming some kind of a Disney spot, I believe, but it stopped me dead in my tracks, and I stood there and refused to move, and I knew at that point in my life that that's what I wanted to do. I love that answer because I had a very similar story where you know at a very early age what you want to do with your life. But I know that you got a little bit sidetracked even in the midst of that dream. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. I know you were passionate about acting, but how did all of that unfold? I know it was a windy road. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, actually a really windy road for me. I'm from New York, was born in Idaho. And um, the reason I was born in Idaho is my parents went on a, a skiing trip in Haley. My mom was seven months pregnant and uh, bouncing around in, on a Jeep in the mountains. And uh, lo and behold, I was born in Haley, Idaho. So I'm like the only Italian guy ever <laughs> born in Idaho. <laughs> but from there, I, I grew up in Long Beach primarily. And my mother was a theater actress and she moved out to LA to pursue her dream which she's, she had another child and she had to put that on hold and uh, she raised kids. But my childhood, I was in the gifted program. They recognized that when I was probably in the first grade. So I had a pretty normal childhood up until maybe age seven or eight. And that's kind of when I remember I used to get, uh, I used to get hit a bit from my father and uh, my dad was a, was a womanizer. Uh, I would get hit for trying to protect my mom, and my mother would get hit for trying to protect me. That kind of went on until the age of probably 12, 13, and that's when my mother made a decision to finally leave that relationship. These are just things that I know about now. I've had to deal with these with these issues. I, I really didn't know where my life was going to take a turn at that point because you know, the one person who I did idolize was my father. And... Once he was gone, all bets were off. Maybe subconsciously, I I rebelled against my mother. I rebelled against society. And I started getting in trouble at that age. And at age 13, I got arrested at school for possession of marijuana. That was my first arrest. That continued age 13 till the age of 38. That's a while. That is a long time. So it, it, it wasn't just the first arrest... I just, I don't know, I, I, I look back on it now and I can't believe that really happened to me, but I know it's true because I was there for every moment of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I remember, but I always still had my, my dream. I always knew. Every time I, I would uh, go to jail, and it progressed with me. It went from juvenile halls to probation camps to youth authority, and when I turned 18, it started with the state prison thing. And the drug use progressed as well, from smoking pot, drinking, 
hallucinogenics and then into narcotics. And I think at age 17 is when I started, uh, I became a heroin addict at age 17. And I stayed that way until I was age 38. And I've been sober now for close to 15 years. Congratulations. I appreciate that, bud. So let's unpack that a little bit because eight, that's a really seven, very young age. And I know that our brains try to make things logical. And usually because we're so egocentric as children, what we do is we take on our abusers, shames and guilt and identity in that sense. And we take it on as our own. So I'm sure that that was something that little eight-year-old you internalized. But then, of course, like a beach ball underwater, it's always going to pop back up. So tell us a little bit. When your mom left, did you still have contact with your dad? What was that like? What's your relationship now? Uh, We speak on the phone every couple of months. But absolutely, I did internalize that. All that, uh, the guilt, if you will, because maybe subconsciously or or internally, I felt like I I may have been the cause. But those are very difficult things for a child, especially seven or eight, to process. Absolutely. And I only know this now because I've I've psychoanalyzed the whole traumatic event, if you will. And I mean, these are exactly the conclusions that I've come to. But it's not without hope, though. Well, did you have so did you have contact with your father after your mother left? Did you have any male role models in your life? No, no, and that that was also part of the problem. Is no, I did not have any contact, and and my my mother at the at the time did really didn't really want to discuss it, and. Yeah. Uh, it was so bad. I mean, I remember getting beat a couple of times and neighbors would call the police. And when they would show up at the door or prior to them showing up the door, I'd be fully dressed and told not to say anything, Absolutely. that you're okay. So I'd be at the door. My mother was terrified. I was terrified. But And then that's the dichotomy of that whole up, upbringing is because this is the man that I, I loved and revered, but also the person I was most terrified of in this world. Yeah. As a child, that's so tough. And you try to make sacrifices so that you keep your parents, and I'm using air quotes, good. And that makes you, in that flip sense, bad as a child. And there it begins. Right, right. And I remember sometimes I'd I'd get a a whooping because uh, I'd want to sing myself to sleep at night. And I was just, yeah, I just had this... Yeah. yeah, but they would, uh, I think they would classify it as uh, ADD now, but no, it, it wasn't ADD. It was just, I had a lot of energy. I was curious, I was creative, and I needed some type of an outlet for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're just a kid. Yeah, exactly. I was just a kid, to simply put it. Yeah. And I didn't have any contact with my father after that. It wasn't until I was maybe 35 that we kind of got back in touch and and I look at him now and he's almost 80 years old and I can't honestly say that I have this love for him because I don't. Right. And quite honestly, I look at him now and I see this sad, broken person. So I, I empathize with him. Yeah. But, and I've forgiven and I've moved on since then. But And I think that's an important point because my definition of forgiveness is to understood that the you can't change the past, first of all, but that the other person did the best they could. Their exactly. Best might not be enough for me to sit around at Thanksgiving dinner with them, but it means that that was all they could do. Right. And, and I understand that he was a sick person. Yeah, that's, yeah, very, very true. So this was very trying on your life. You mentioned you went to prison at 18. What was that like? 18 is such a young age. It's such an influential time, a time, you know, and as you mentioned, you were gifted. I know you received scholarships to college. 
I did. So, so tell us about that. Uh, yeah, briefly, just to not skip over the uh, 13 to 18. Yeah. I was, uh, I got into a lot of trouble, property crimes, drug use, and like I mentioned before, it was juvenile halls, probation camps, youth authority, and then um, even during that time, though, I was still able to go to school while I was, when I wasn't in trouble and while I was out. And I still, I received two scholarships when I graduated high school and I graduated at age 16 and a half. Wow. And I I got two scholarships for uh, English journalism and I was, uh, they were actually grants and one was from the Los Angeles Times and the other was from the Rotary Club of Long Beach. But that wasn't enough for me to stop using drugs. And quite frankly, the first time I, I did experiment with drugs, I felt completely at ease, I felt relaxed, and all that tension and, and an internal turmoil that I had was finally just kind of quelled itself. Mm. I've heard and the I, definition of addiction is looking for God in all the wrong places. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> yeah. expecting different results. True. And that was kind of how my life was. It was pretty insane during that time. But uh, nonetheless, when I was sentenced to a youth authority at uh, 16 and a half, right after my uh, high school graduation, I was able to, um, I took a trade up in the youth school that I was in, or the reform school, if you will, for lack of a better term. And I learned a welding background. Okay. I, I took up the welding trade and uh, became a L.A. City uh, Structural Steel Certified Welder at that point. But that still wasn't enough to deter me from getting back out and using drugs. And I have to say this, that I did want to quit each time. I was remorseful and I was like, oh, I would tell myself, I don't want to live like this. I got to stop. But this phenomenon of craving would happen to me as soon as I was released. And it, it's the only way I knew how to cope at that point in my life. So it was more than just, I think a lot of us, you know, we're the most medicated, obese, in-debt society, and a lot of us do numb. But this was more than that. This was a physical addiction. Oh, this was a physical craving yeah. addiction. Even though I had been away from it for a year at a time, six months at a time, depending on whatever my sentence was at that point. But it's, I mean, I, I, I kid you not, as soon as I would be free. My stomach would literally do backflips. And if anybody's ever suffered from an alcohol or drug addiction at the level that I did, they could understand that. And the only way I knew uh, how to get rid of that feeling was to get high. Yeah. So uh, at age 18, I still continued to do my thing and uh, disobey the laws of the land. And I started getting sentenced to state prison. I still didn't realize or think I had a problem at that point, but I always remember a judge that I had when I was 14 years old who sentenced me to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because he recognized that I had a problem. But it was it would be many, many years before I recognized that. And I also remember him telling me at age 14 that I would quit when I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I never forgot that. So I always remembered, and his name was uh, uh, John Scott, Judge John Scott. I'll never forget him. And was he right? Absolutely. He was 100% right. So tell us about prison and your time in prison. (laughs) I know you mentioned that you were in and out um, due to the drug addiction. Can you paint us a picture of that? Uh, Yeah, I I can. So um, I went to prison the first time at age 18. 
And the last time I went to prison, or the last time I was released from prison, was age 38. So, and I was sentenced uh, six different times by the Los Angeles Superior Court to state prison, and the, for property crimes uh, or different thefts, i.e., uh, burglary. Uh, check forgery, bank fraud. When I was a, as a juvenile, I have to kind of backtrack, but as a juvenile going into the system, it, it was very, very structured and very disciplined. And we were kids. And But as soon as I became an adult and started entering the state prison system, the structure was there, but it wasn't enforced or as disciplined as it was. in. this was a time when the California prison system was pretty liberal. Okay. We could wear our own clothes. There was as many drugs in there as there were out here. It was just a very, as long as we were, uh, I don't want to say sedated, but as long as we were calm and... Not causing trouble, yeah. Yeah, not causing, calm and, and, and busy. Then they would leave us alone and pretty much let us do what we wanted. It made the corrections staff's job a lot more easier. Understandable. But each time I did a term, is what they call it, prison term, and I would get paroled, I would promise and I would swear to myself, to God, to my family, that I'm never going to do that again. That's it. I, have, I still have stacks of letters that my mother's shown me, that my wife now has shown me, that I've written when I was in there. And these are 20, 30-page novels. The reason I bring that up is my scholarships were for English journalism, so they were very eloquently written letters. And that was your creative outlet at the time, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I also I also drew while I was in there and painted. And- mm. The irony to me in that promise is it's as though me promising to not get cancer again, which is something that I have some control over. But, you know, if you have an illness, it's an illness. And we don't always see drug addiction in that way. I think we're beginning to and, and to understand it more. But, you know, certainly 15 years ago, it was not. It, it, well, it wasn't recognized as such, but Absolutely. I mean, and I can be the witness to that because I'm someone who has lived that and lived through that and survived that, that it definitely is an illness. When I mentioned that there was this phenomenon of craving that would happen is my stomach would do backflips, my skin was crawling inside out, and the only thing I knew to do to get rid of that was to ingest uh, alcohol or a narcotic. But once I did that, then the phenomenon of craving would set in and all bets were off. So how did you come clean? What was your rock bottom? How did you climb out of that well? Well, which one? I had a lot of rock bottoms and I found that a lot of trap doors there too. Mm. I kept falling further and further. But I, I had quite a few rock bottoms. I was homeless on the streets for a year, living in abandoned houses. I thought that would be a rock bottom. That wasn't. Uh, an overdose on heroin six different times. I thought that would be a rock bottom. It wasn't. Let's see. Uh, fell asleep at the wheel in, uh, in a brand new car and wrapped my truck around a telephone pole and was pronounced DOA at the hospital and then brought back to life. And I thought that would be a rock bottom and it wasn't. So I say that to see this, that what ultimately became a rock bottom for me was that I, luckily I survived through this and there was enough grace from God over my life that I was able to survive that. But that the drugs and alcohol and my freedom being taken away from me and uh, finally beat me into a state of submission 
where I came to a point and I realized that I never wanted to live like that again and that I was willing to do whatever it took to make those changes. And it was an act of humility on my point because I mentioned the gifted thing in the very beginning because I've always had the attitude and that I was smarter than everyone. Not not did I just think it, I knew it. But uh, so I had to humble myself and pretty much beg God here, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. So I had, I was in a state of submission and that's when things began to change for me. And what changed? Well, uh, the first thing that changed was uh, I wasn't going back to jail anymore, but and I, I wasn't using drugs. Who did you call? Who did you reach out to for help? What did that look like? Actually, the uh, what actually the specific course of events that happened was uh, I was out. I was I was living at my my mother's house. I, I was just released from prison. I think I was out for sixty days, and I had been getting high from day one since my release. And uh, they wouldn't let me live in the house anymore. My mother kicked me out of the house. So I was sneaking into the garage and I was sleeping into the garage without them knowing. And they finally discovered me in there and they locked the garage. So I wasn't able to sleep in the garage anymore. So I was on the streets and it was very cold and uh, I could not put five bucks together to get high. I, I just didn't have it in me anymore. I, I guess I want to say that I don't want to use a slang term, but I had no more hustle left. It mm. was just all gone. That resonates. Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so I knocked on my mother's door and I asked her if I could use her phone. Can you please just let me use your phone? So she goes, Why? And she wouldn't open the, the security door. So this was all through the security door. And I said, well, I'm going to call a guy that I know who can possibly get me into a detox. So she handed me the phone through the crack of the screen door. And I called a friend of mine named Randy Schoenfeld, who's not with us anymore. But uh, him and his wife came and picked me up. And uh, they took me to a detox. And that was June 26th, uh, 2001. And I've been sober since. Wow. And so at that time, so I take it you joined the 12-step program. I did. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, Moving Forward listeners. If you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. And as you were recovering, as you were getting back on your feet, did you ever believe that it was too late to follow your childhood dream? Actually, no, I didn't believe it was too late. But quite honestly, in the very beginning of my sobriety, it's not something I was thinking about. My, my only focus at that point was trying to learn how to live in society. Mm, you know, because right. as I mentioned, from the age of 14 to the age of 38, I had not had stints of longer than uh, nine months to a year on the streets. I'd be out for six months, nine months, 30 days, two weeks, right back in. So I had to learn how to live out here again. So this is the sense of humor that God has. The very first job I got was I was raising uh, political campaign funds for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Union over the phone <laughs> <laughs> on parole. I have to, I have to mention that. Did they know? 
No, they did not. Okay. It, wasn't a, it wasn't a question at the job interview, so I, I didn't feel the need to share that with Bed you. Bedmates of politics. I love that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was the very first job I had, and then I, I continued to show. And I, I like to refer to God quite a bit because it's not something that I was able to do on my own. I couldn't get sober on my own. I couldn't live out here, productive member of society on my own. These, these were those moments in my life where God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And uh, I got a job as a at a cabinet shop after that. Then uh, I got a job for uh, Catalina Yachts, actually, where I worked for close to 10 years until I was laid off. But I bring that story up just to reiterate the point that, for me, this was my truth. But as long as I put my sobriety and my spiritual higher power, God, whatever you want to call it first, then everything else would be taken care of for me. And where did you find God? Was it in the 12-step program? Was it in prison? Was it something you always had? I, it's something I've always believed in. I've, I mean, I've believed in God. I, I can't remember like being pulled to the side saying, this is good, this is bad, this is God, this is not. Do you believe? No, I've just always believed. Was there religion in your household or is this all spiritual knowing? There there was, there was. And my, my father was Catholic, so I went to Sunday school. I went to Mass every Sunday. But that's more religion than spirituality, if you ask me. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. You know? Because I was there, this person that would believe in God and watched him put money in the offering plate. And on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm getting my butt whooped. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel there was anything godly about that. And there's not. And I remember there being a crucifix in my room that hung over my door. And I remember as early as five, six, seven years old praying, going, God, please, please make it stop. Yeah. So what, how would you differentiate between spirituality and religion? What's your own personal definition of each? My personal definition would be a spirituality would be more along the lines of believing in something bigger than we are. Yes. And I can, I'd like to add a third thing to that, but yeah. Religion would be do good on Sunday and be bad the rest of the week, be a hypocrite, if you will. And I'd like to add, though, the personal relationship that you have with God. I can pick up my brain at any point I want to and call God and say, hey, I can't handle this. Can you take care of this for me? Mm. I've heard Ayan LaVanzant say, I don't pray to an external God. I pray to an internal God because God Absolutely. is in here. So what do you believe to be the point of the human experience? And I ask this because you have been through so much. Why the trials and tribulations? Because we all have them. What do you think the point to this is? Uh, let me think about that. I, I think for me personally, I mean, I can't speak for the rest of the human race, but for me personally, it was just learning these lessons in life. So when I believe that there is an afterlife, I base that on the simple reasoning that if our experience of 70, 80, 90 years is it, and then there's blackness afterwards, and we don't get to remember this experience, then this was the biggest cosmic tease ever. <laughs> and so I, I mean, I just, in my heart of hearts, I know there's more after this. So I think our, our journey is to learn what's right and wrong and to come to that point of lovingness and humanity on our own volition without being forced to, because God doesn't want robots, Absolutely, if you will. Yeah. Hence free will. Yes, exactly. Hence free will. So back to your profession now. Tell us a little bit about how you got to your current path. How did you arrive? Okay, well, this, this is where the story really gets exciting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is where the divine intervention actually happens. And it's very evident. So as I mentioned, I work for uh, Catalina Yachts. I was a boat builder, uh, maintenance mechanic, welder. You know, I was able to bring all these trades together and I was promoted uh, to the plant manager very quickly. And uh, one day a guy walks in and this is about the time I had been with the company uh, close to 10 years at this point. But a guy walks into the shop randomly and asks one of the workers, is there anybody that does side work? And the guy that he asked said, well, I don't, but I know Anthony does because I would take side jobs and go work in the marinas in Southern California. And uh, so the guy, I, I get referred to this guy. So I do some work on his boat and lo and behold, a few months later, I get laid off and I, I was doing custom woodwork for him. But I cultivated this relationship with him and I get laid off from my company on, uh, I think, Thanksgiving week. But prior to that, I had been really thinking about, okay, is this really what I want to do with my life? And then my old dream that was always there of being an actor and being on camera and just working in that medium of film started to reveal itself again in a strong way. So I'm down on my friend's boat and I mentioned to him, hey, I got laid off from the company. And he asked me, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'd probably start chasing an acting career, to be honest with you. And he responded with, really, are you an actor? And my response to him was, uh, absolutely, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, to quote Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, how long have you been acting? And I said, my whole life, which is true. And I go back to those prison stories and the in-custody stories as a juvenile. That's never who I was. I was never that drug addict. I was never that prison guy. I was never that tough kid in the juvenile halls. But I had to act like I was because I was terrified. Oh, yeah. People have asked me, why did you wait so late in life to... Uh, I always say that I had to do years of character research. <laughs> it's always my response. It's never not true. <laughs> right. And there is one more funny thing I'll, I'll add. It's uh, on my resume. It's, uh, as actors, we all have headshots and resumes. Mm -hmm. And it's a little line I have under my special skills section. And it says swimming, volleyball, horseback rider, stunts, whatever it is. But I have one line that I hide in the middle of the paragraph that says familiar with law enforcement. <laughs> and it's my secret, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> you might have just given it away, but <laughs> right, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I have a couple other ones, but it's the it's the one thing that reminds me that uh, where I came from and where I've been brought to now. But back to the uh, to the story. So my friend asked me, "What are you going to do?" And he says, and "I told him I've been acting my whole life." And he said, "Well, what's stopping you?" And I said, "Quite honestly, I'm I don't have a SAG card. I'm not a Screen Actors Guild member, and it's all non-union and." He said, well, I work in that business and I could help you out. And he hands me a card that I had never seen before. He was a, a fireman for uh, the Los Angeles Fire Department. And I didn't know that he worked and that he was a Screen Actors Guild member as well. So he hands me this card and uh, he says, hey, I'm working on a film in Albuquerque in a couple of months. If you want, you can come out and I'll see if I can get you in the union. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, I didn't really give it much thought. And then I went home and I, I looked him up. The guy's been working. He had over 100 credits. He was on Earthquake in 1977. So he was like this big shot. Wow. He was a stunt coordinator. And uh, lo and behold, a month later, I get this phone call. He says, I'm in Albuquerque on the film. I can't pay for a plane ticket or put you up while you're here. But if you show up, I think I can get you in. So I literally closed up the house and I drove 16 and a half hours straight to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. 
Yeah. And I got myself on a film called uh, Trade with Kevin Klein, and I did utility stunts, and they had me hang off of Sandia Crest Mountain, which is uh, almost 11,000 feet tall. Well, that I hung doesn't a th- sound safe at all. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't. I hung yeah. 500 feet over the cliff Ooh. for two days, and I was taff Hartley and I became a Screen Actors Guild member. And there it began. Exactly. Excellent. So what is next for you? What projects are you working on now? Uh, well, I just came off of a TV show, Rizzoli and Isles. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I with, am. Yeah, Angie Harmon and Bruce McGill. I just did a guest star episode with them. And uh, I'm in the middle of producing a film with uh, the actor Tony Cox. I don't know if you guys remember him. He was uh, the uh, little person from Bad Santa next to Billy Bob Thornton. The visual image just came. (laughs) (laughs) We're producing a film titled Tony Capone with him where uh, he becomes head of the five uh, New York families. And and helps them become legitimate. It's a comedy. It's a rated PG comedy. When is that due out? Uh, it's where it's in development now, and it's at the script stage at this point. Beautiful. So, a couple of final questions for you. So, you know, we talked a little bit about God and spirituality. What's your spiritual practice today? Well, quite honestly, you know, I, I told you I've been uh, sober close to fifteen years. When I wake up in the morning. I get on my knees, I humble myself on a daily basis, and I thank God for another day that has passed where I was able to go to sleep sober and wake up sober, and I ask him for his will that day and the power to continue the day sober. Gratitude. Absolutely. Very it's powerful completely, practice. Completely, complete, complete gratitude. And I can't stress that enough. It's that. And quite honestly, Kristen, I was very hesitant about sharing some of my past because the person I portray today and people that know me today, they have no idea of my history. It's, it's like if, uh, if I was dating, I'm going to introduce myself. Hi, how you doing? My name's Anthony Vitale. I'm an ex-heroin addict, been to prison six times, but I'm really a nice guy. <laughs> it it well, doesn't fly. I, I always say, I hope that no one remembers my worst deeds because, you know, we all have them. And I hope that we can all, just in the name of humanity, look at each other and see our best selves in one another. And I think something very important about your story, too, not just from going to point A from the very, very bottom to such a beautiful top and to do what you love and to be doing it now, is that you never had to know the how. You just knew that you wanted to get there. You allowed the path to unfold, and it was this beautiful trust in the universe, and right. you were rewarded for that and your patience. And But that only happened when I showed that I was willing to do whatever it, it took. And part of that willingness was, hey, you got to work for the sheriff's department raising political <laughs> funds for the first year. There's the sense of humor. Right, right. I do think God is hilarious, and yeah, there is irony in every story. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I have a ton of those stories. And I say the whole, we talked about me becoming a Screen Actors Guild member. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that was just the beginning. Okay, cool. I have this union card now, but I don't have any training whatsoever. I'm not this classically trained actor. And I literally drove into Hollywood and I started knocking on doors. And I have to t- uh, tell you guys one funny story. One of the very first agencies who I won't mention, who I interviewed with when I was brand new, I got myself an interview. I picked up the phone and I talked to a photographer friend of mine who I was getting headshots done with. And I said, hey, do you know any good agents? And they gave me the name of this agency 
who they said, well, I've always heard, heard, heard good things about them. So I got on the phone and I called them and I got myself an interview. And uh, I show up in my best suit and tie and they asked for my headshots. I told them I don't have any. And they said, uh, well, let's see your resume. I says, I don't have one of those either. And they said, well. <laughs> Why are you <laughs> here? Said, right. Well, they didn't ask that yet. Okay. They, they asked to hear my monologue. And my response to them was, what's that? Oh, hello. I had no idea what a monologue was. So they continued and said, well, what are you doing here? And my simple, naive response, because I had no idea what I was doing, was I've decided to become an actor, and I, I know I need an agent, and I thought I'd give you guys first chance at representing me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they didn't sign me. Right. <laughs> but we fast forward to the many things I've learned through that process. And each time I went and did something very naively, I would learn something. So I learned that, hey, you need headshots and a resume. You need and a monologue. A, and a monologue. And <laughs> you know, 31 film and television credits later, I'm able to say I, I'm starting to understand how the business works. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. Well, final question. So if our listeners want to learn more about you and follow you, are you available on social media? How would they connect with you? Absolutely. Uh, I'm on social media on Facebook under Anthony Lewis Vitale, and that's L-E-W-I-S. And then also my IMDb page, of course, and that's also under Anthony Lewis Vitale. And listeners will have all of this information up on the Vuavant website. Absolutely. Tony, thank you so much for being here. I know that that was not the easiest story to share, but I think that by you doing so, you're going to give a lot of our listeners permission to be authentic and to follow right. their own dreams. Absolutely. And I'd like to close with this and justify why I even delved into what I did delve into is that it doesn't matter how far down the scale you slid or what valley you think you're walking in, that it's, on the, it's, it's in the valleys that we grow, not on the mm -hmm. mountaintops. And you can do it. If I did it, anybody can do it. I love that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I really appreciate it, Kristen. Yeah. Thank you. And listeners, thank you as well. Did you like this podcast? If so, rate us on iTunes and Stitchers. Thank you again for listening. I'm Kristen Nepper. Good night and Satnam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.